identity to start off with. Our identity is not based on our activity. Our identity is based on what God has done for us. So have a look at verse 12 as we begin this passage. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. See how he sets the scene? Chosen, holy, loved. All these words are used in the Old Testament to describe God's people, the Jews. And now he applies it to these Gentiles. Israel was chosen by God. That reading from Deuteronomy 7 is a pretty hard reading, wasn't it? About going into the promised land and uh, taking over the place and actually getting rid of the inhabitants there. But God takes his holiness seriously. And he says to those who are there, you need to be holy as you go into this land. If, you're, if, you, if you intermarry with the people there, you'll find that you'll begin to worship other gods. And of course, as the Israelites did that, that's exactly what happened. Let me read to you again from that passage. This is what God says about holiness. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you're more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Like an orphan, chosen to be adopted and taken home and given the family last name and welcomed in, so are these Gentile Christians. Now, we don't know why we're chosen, but the Bible says that we are. In the, in the long run, after we asked all the questions, all we can do is to thank God for that. Wake up in the morning in your prayer, say, thank you, Lord, that you have chosen me to know you. Help me to be a, a vessel where I can share that knowledge with others. The Colossians are also told that they're holy. Uh, this is not an ordinary family they're adopted into. This is a royal family. Uh, it's a family that's valued and significant and treasured and important and you are now part of that family. Literally, holiness means set apart. There's the group, you stand apart from the group. The opposite of holy is profane, where you take something of valuable and special and you treat it as being very ordinary. I think weddings are holy. I think particularly weddings in a church, are holy. I used to take a lot of weddings uh, in a church that I was at once, up to four on a Saturday afternoon in a row. Uh, the bride would leave and the next one would arrive and so on. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, interesting. I used to think and I used to tell the couple that what they were doing was, was a holy time. It was significant. They weren't being married in the park. They weren't saying poems to each other and letting off butterflies and all that sort of stuff. In the church... They were saying some vows that were very significant to each other. And so I wanted them uh, to appreciate this. So I had some rules for holiness in the church. One was the groom was not allowed to be drunk, which sometimes they were. But I told them at the, the, um, the practice that they weren't supposed to be, to be drunk on the day because what they had to say was important and I wanted them not to get it wrong. I talked to them about where you could take photos and where you couldn't, so that didn't mess up the service. And also about phone etiquette, because this is in the days when mobiles were just coming in and people weren't sure how to use them. Uh, one particular wedding, one gentleman received a phone call, uh, and usually when that happens, people are quite embarrassed and they turn it off. This guy proceeded to have a loud conversation, like the ones you hear on trains. And he just talked and talked and talked, and in the end he held up the phone to me as if to say, well, it was important. I had to take it. 
I, I spoke to him afterwards about what I thought about his actions and the holiness of the wedding. I don't think I got through, but the groom used a few choice words that I think helped later on. We're God's people. We're set aside for service in his kingdom. The way we conduct ourselves is not to be the same as everybody else. Our life is not the same as every other life. God calls us to holiness before he tells us how to be holy. So these Christians, these Gentile Christians, are told that they're holy and chosen, and now they're told that they're dearly loved. God has set his affection upon them. You can never say this about any of the Greek or Roman gods. They didn't set their affection upon you unless you uh, did something for them, that you strove to please them. But God tells the Colossians and us that we're special and important because God loves us. And as Michelle pointed out before, the God who loves us, especially in the Old Testament, again and again goes back to his people, even though they rebel against him, and says, I love you despite what you're doing. I love a passage in Hosea that spells this out from Hosea chapter 11. And, and the whole story of Hosea is how God woos his bride back to him. And he says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. This is the love that God has for his people. And uh, now Paul says, you Gentiles, this is the way God loves you. Have you taken that on board? Do you realize that you're unconditionally loved by someone? Because it can begin a healing process in you if you've only ever known rejection in life. If you've only ever been told that you're not loved, now you're told that you are loved. Know it and rejoice. This is the Father's way of giving you an identity. And it will now transform your activity. Last week we looked at the five things we're to take off. Now we start to look at the five things we're to put on. And when you put on these clothes, the good thing is they never go out of date. You can wear them over and over and over again. And so we read, Therefore as God's people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So let's have a look at these as we go through. Put on a heart of compassion. The original language speaks about the bowels of compassion because that's where you feel things. Ever had your children come up to you and say, I've got a tummy ache? Which means I don't want to go to school today because I'm anxious. And that's where, it's, that's where it's forming. Or when you fall in love, you feel it in the tummy, don't you? Or when you're scared, nervous tension, it's there. And uh, Paul is saying to us here, have a stomach of compassion. Feel compassion in your stomach. When you see people like the aged and the homeless and the refugees and the mentally ill and have compassion for them because society doesn't do that well, does it? And if it doesn't do it well, Christians ought to. Christianity brought compassion into a culture and it still does, a culture that lacks it. And in our relationships in church, what comes out reveals who we are. 
So if we see someone in need, we need to ask the questions about uh, how we care for them, if we're worried about them, saying, I'm concerned for you. What can I pray for? How can I help? These should be natural questions for us rather than going, hey, how are you? Hey, did you watch the cricket last night? We need to go a little bit deeper, don't we, in the things where we can be compassionate about. This is not something we turn on and off like an appliance. It's not like the radio or the fridge where we can turn it on and off. It's a growing attitude of the heart. And then there's kindness. Once again, this is not natural to us. In fact, it's incredibly lacking in the age of the selfie. You know, for a long time we had cameras where I would take a picture of you. You might be over there in front of the three sisters. I'd say, I'm going to get a picture here of the three sisters and I'm going to get you over there. Click. And then we got the phone that actually could turn around and take a picture of us. So we'd take a picture of the three sisters, but we'd say, you just move out of the way and I'll take a picture of me. So it was me, 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 me. Oh, you. Ah, sorry. Delete. Me, me. We live in the age of the selfie. And we, we've taken this on board, haven't we? We, we start to love each other. and love, So we start to love one another, ourselves. And our kindness is really that there's other people we can be life-giving to. It's realising that. All who wear the garment of kindness are beautiful people. I've got uh, three, four kids. No, I shouldn't say three, four kids. All of who show me up uh, in areas of practical Christian living. But one in particular has this ability to be kind and compassionate. She takes in the poor off the street and refugees and the homeless. She gives to people. She gives of her time and her money and her actions and her friends want to be nearer because of her kindness. It just takes a little longer with some of us. One of the beautiful pictures of kindness in the Bible comes from the story of David and Mephibosheth. Remember that story? Uh, David has become king and Saul has, been, uh, has died, and Jonathan, his son. But David, uh, out of um, love and kindness, wants to show kindness to one of Saul's children. He says, who's left? Well, there's this crippled boy, Mephibosheth. And David invites him to come to his table and to, to live in the palace and to eat with him. Justice would have said, get rid of him, get rid of the line of Saul. But David wanted to show kindness. David realised he'd been saved by God's kindness and appointed to this position of rulership and he wants to show kindness to others. And we in turn must do the same. Then there's humility or lowliness. I think it was Donald Trump who said, I take great pride in being humble. It's a word that the Greek culture despised uh, in our own culture, humility is seen more as a vice than a virtue. Uh, pride is a virtue for us. Respect is another word we throw around all the time. You respect me because you need to honour me. You need to give me recognition. Uh, you need to give me respect because I'm more dominant than you. But in the Bible, pride is a sin and humility is a virtue. Paul, who had so much he could boast about, says in the book of Acts, that he served the Lord with great humility and with tears. That's why he could write to the church in Rome. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Jesus was humble. He tells us himself he came to serve and not to be served. Although equal with God, he made himself nothing. 
There's no pride. There's no arrogance in Jesus' life. And humility allows for a culture of true respect. Respect for your partner. Respect for parents. Respect for your boss. Respect for pastors. In the church, humble people don't escalate conflicts, do they? They look for a solution. It's a piece of clothing we should put on again and again. Then there's gentleness or meekness. And meekness, we know, is not weakness. It's not being trod over. It's not being a doormat. Rather, it's power under control. The original language speaks about a wind, a gentle breeze. It speaks about a cult being broken in. That's the idea of meekness. We know that a breeze can grow into a hurricane. There can be great strength there. We know that a cult can kick and jump and hurt. We think of those um, uh, programs we see on TV with David Attenborough where we see a picture of a, a lioness in close-up with pups biting uh, and cubs biting her ears and her, her tail. And with one sweep, the lioness could swipe them. And, but she's got power, but it's under control. In 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul talks about himself being gentle like a mother caring for her children. Writing to Timothy, he encourages church leaders to be gentle and not violent towards people under their care. In his first letter, Peter writes that wives should seek the unfolding beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So a special word to ladies. Strength under control. And then there's patience. What do you like with patience? Patience. Our Bible study the other night when we said, which ones do we fail in? This one was the hands up for most of us. Let me illustrate. I was taking a class the other day. I do some casual teaching from time to time and I was taking a PE class. I've been a PE teacher for quite a while. And uh, I'm used to taking classes, fairly rowdy class. Um, When they were getting changed, it was boys and girls, but the boys were being very loud and I knew I was in for a bit of trouble because they didn't come out of the change rooms for quite a while. And eventually they came out and half of them weren't changed anyway. So I was losing my patience before the lesson began. Uh, I got them to sit on some gym mats at the end of the gym. I was marking the roll and the boys were pushing and shoving each other as boys do and the girls were sitting there like angels. Uh, For some unknown reason, and this is what usually happens with boys, one of them decided to climb up into a carpet bowls mat. Now, carpet bowls mats are fairly long, about two metres long, and they're very thick. And when you roll them up, there's actually a hole inside. And so the boy actually climbed up into the hole, and just as I called his name, he put his hand up, and then he slipped down into the hole. Well, my patience was in tatters, but I reached in to try to pull him out, but he was stuck. So we had to get the roll out and put it on the floor, and with the help of the year eight boys, who were only too happy to help, And we learnt there are two ways to push a carpet roll. One is where you push the roll and it unrolls. The other is to push it where it just sort of rolls over onto itself. The year eight boys chose the latter and pushed it up the gym and then back until the ball finally rolled out and said, can we do that again? (laughs) During that time, I prayed two things. I prayed that the boy would be safe I prayed for patience and God answered both prayers. I could have erupted and kept them in for infinity, but I didn't. I calmly sorted through the situation 
got the class back into order, and then I yelled at them. But it was controlled. I, I could have gone right off the deep end, but it was controlled. And I thank God for that. Patience or long-suffering means not acting impulsively and losing control. It means putting up with provoking people or circumstances without retaliating. It's okay to get angry at times, but controlled rather than raw aggression. Well, these are the qualities, aren't they? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and long-suffering, all worn by Jesus. We only have to, looking for a visual illustration, just go to the Gospels. And Jesus uh, says, as Paul does too, we need to put them on again and again until they become part of our person. Well, what happens when we wear these new clothes? Well, we're told in verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We bear with people and we forgive them. That's not an easy thing to do. And if you can't find it anywhere else in society, at least you should find it in the church. Despite our differences over issues about what we might wear to church or what we might sing or whether we should build something else or where we should put our money or who we should baptise or who we should marry, we still continue to build relationships. Once we understand our relationship with God, it causes us to treat others in the way God treats us. I go so far as to say we're not biblical unless we're relational. There's no good knowing the truth about God if we're not in relationship for anyone to hear it. Relationships should be strong enough to deal with issues rather than the issue destroying relationships. That's a big point that Paul's moving towards here. Who we are as a believer, how we conduct ourselves in these new clothes, and then how do we put that into practice within the Christian community. And when someone in church frustrates or annoys you, the first thing you need to remember is that you have been forgiven. Forgiveness is a cancelling of debt, and God has left you debt-free. So do the same for others. Don't hold a grudge against someone that you meet with week after week. As forgiven people, we need to be forgiven. It's like a dry creek bed that's been dry for ages and then there's a storm a couple of kilometres upstream and then the water begins to trickle down. And pretty soon you see a frog come out and it's been underground for ages and it comes out and begins to croak and, and greenery starts to form around the edges of the creek and the birds come back. And trees grow and fruit comes. Forgiveness brings healing and health and life. It also allows all the hurt and the anger and the bitterness to be washed away so that we can enjoy the peace and the presence of the God who heals. Have you experienced that? Have you been forgiven or you've you've asked for forgiveness and forgiven someone and felt the healing power of God? It does work. This is fairly radical in our culture to be forgiven. Society doesn't do forgiveness well. We talk about venting and vengeance and harbouring bitterness. You see that in social media and you see it on TV every night. Someone comes out of jail and we want to throw them back for another 30 years. So we forgive as God forgave us. Verse 14, over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Picture a Middle Eastern man. He's put on all the clothes, compassion, the kindness, the humility, and the others. 
and then he binds them all with the belt of love. Here's the ultimate garment. The emphasis in the language is continuous here. Put on love over and over and over again. What love does in relationships, it allows the family and the church to stop using each other. So often what we describe as love is not love at all. It's me being conditional. I say, I will love you if you do this for me. I will love you if you give me a good house and you give me security and you give me children. I will love you if you do this for me sexually. I will love you if you give me a church where we keep the tradition that I'm used to and we don't let too many new people in. And you know the consequences if um, you don't. I'll pull out, I'll go somewhere else. You stop filling my needs and, well, but God's relationship doesn't work like that, does it? God's relationship isn't defined by conditions. God doesn't make a relationship to use us and neither should we. And Paul goes on in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. When I grew up playing sport, my, my mum and my dad and my coaches always told me the ref was always right. I hope you're instilling that in your children, even though we know that refs are always wrong, but they're still, that's, that's what should be in your mind. You know, if an arbiter is right. Today, every player and parent thinks they're an umpire referee. Ask our junior football, well, there aren't any junior football referees left because the parents and the, everyone's complaining so often. We get contested calls in relationships too, don't we? We argue with someone. We both think we're right. We put our foot down. We won't budge. How do we resolve it? Well, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. How do you do that? Well, when you've got an issue, the first thing you can do is pray about it. It might be difficult to pray with each other, but pray for the other person. That may lead to praying with each other. It may lead then to seeking uh, God's uh, will in, in reading God's word and seeking advice from others. But don't just harbour uh, bitterness and have a grudge. Paul admonishes us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So often when we argue, we become archaeologists and we just dig up the past. Your grandmother was like this and your mother was like this and you're exactly the same. Sorry, Julia, I didn't mean to point at you. All the faults and your failures and your flaws get excavated. We forget the reasons what we're thankful for. There's a big issue things we can be thankful for, aren't there? We can be thankful for all the good things that God gives us. And where do we practice all these things? The compassion and the kindness and the humility and the gentleness and the patience. Well, it's in the church. It's with the people of God. It's right here where we learn to do relationships well. And Paul finishes off verses 16 and 17. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We become like who we worship. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of worship. It's a kingdom where we want to be like our king. And when we come together, we do kingdom things. So we take in God's word and we're nourished by it. If we did nothing else in church, we would want to hear the word of God. 
That's what our focus is about, hearing God's word. I was discouraged the other day when I talked to someone about what they do in church. I said, do you have a Bible reading? They said, no, the minister just gets up and talks. And he uses some verses. And I thought, well, I think you're missing out because the word of God is the thing that nourishes us. And that's what our, our service is built about. So we need the word of God. And Paul tells us there, get nourished by it. We sing. We celebrate our great king, his victory over sin and death. We'll let the Holy Spirit teach and admonish us. Think about the songs this morning. You say who I am. I mean, that so well fits in with our sermon about the whole idea of identity. God gives us this identity. He tells us who we are. And then we go on to serve him. And so often it's in times of need, the Holy Spirit teaches us through song. And in times of joy, we sing Christian songs of praise. We do everything we're told in the name of Jesus. This is serving. This is one of the great joys of being a Christian and helps you grow spiritually. Again, we live in a Western culture that says, you serve me, I'll pay you, you serve me. And when they don't serve us well, we complain. The kingdom is not about being served, but about serving. It's something we need to teach our children at an early age. And as we serve, we mature, we grow. It allows us to take all these characteristics we've talked about this morning and put them into practice as we invest in someone else. So give thanks to God the Father through the precious name of Jesus. Whether you're in a good season or a bad season, there are so many things we can thank God for. Jesus' resurrection, our forgiveness, his coming back in his kingdom, all those things. Chosen, holy, love, forgiven. There's a lot to sing about, isn't there? So the next time you wear your pyjamas to school, drop off. Think about these verses and the Christ-like characteristics you need to be putting on. The philosopher Ivan Illick was once asked by a student, how do you change a society? Is it through radical revolution? Do you, do you sort of take up arms and fight against uh, what's there already? Or do you gradually sort of uh, change things over a period of time? Illick thought for a while, and then he said, neither. If you want to change society, we must tell an alternative story. As we learn from God's word, may our lives tell an alternative story to a watching world. A story of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, patience, love and peace. May God work through us by his transforming power to shine those graces to a watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Help us to take it in and apply it. And help us week by week to put on these graces so that we might be changed and our church might be changed by the way we exercise these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.